0: If you would take your Bibles and uh, open them up with me this morning to the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at a portion of the third chapter of John's Gospel this morning. John chapter 3 beginning with verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who, has, who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does, not, everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Father, this is such a significant portion of your word, and there is so much here. We could spend far more time than we have available to us today, working through this one passage. But Father, it's our desire to hear your voice in your word this morning and to glean from it what you would have us to know. Take it, Father. Open our hearts to receive it and accomplish all that you will. For Christ's sake, for the good of your people. Amen. The Lord brought Fran and I And Christopher, here to Red Mills in the spring of 1993, which means that this would be the 29th New Year's sermon that I have preached from this pulpit, but there have been a year or two when we were away over New Year's, so it's probably more like 27. In any case, it's been a lot of New Year's sermons. And at least in my experience, throughout the course of a long ministry in one place, one becomes concerned with the possibility of repetition. Eventually, you find that you've preached all of the obvious New Year's passages, and you find yourself wondering, what now? As the years roll on, however, you begin to realize a couple of things. The first thing you realize is that even if people were around the last time you preached on a particular passage, they won't remember. (laughs) You also realize that if someone does happen to remember, maybe they've scrolled a few notes in their Bible or something, they don't care. Another thing that comes, one comes to realize is that not only is there nothing wrong with repetition, but biblically, repetition is something that is good and necessary. In fact, there are nine separate instances in the New Testament where Paul and Peter and Jude and the author of Hebrews speak of the necessity of reminding God's people of things which they have already been taught. Some of those reminders have to do with sanctification and the Christian life, and some have to do with doctrine, and sometimes it's a reminder of the gospel itself. All that to say, I don't know whether or not I have preached this passage on new years before. And if I have good. Neither the world nor the people of God can hear the truths of John chapter 3 too often. George Whitfield is one of my favorite characters in all of Christian history. At the age of 16 he became deeply convicted of sin he tried everything possible to erase his guilt through what we might call religiosity he wrote this i fasted for 36 hours twice a week i prayed formal prayer several times a day and almost starved myself to death during lent but only felt more miserable Then, by God's grace, I met Charles Wesley, who put a book in my hand and showed me from the scriptures that I must be born again or be eternally lost. Finally, by the work of the Holy Spirit in his heart, Whitfield came to understand Jesus' words here in John chapter 3. He believed them, and he was gloriously saved. And during the course of his ministry, it's estimated that he went on to preach on this passage at least a thousand times. Preaching on the text, you must be born again. Now granted, he wasn't a local church pastor. So he wasn't preaching that to the same people a thousand times. His ministry was essentially that of an itinerant. The established churches wouldn't let him in, so he'd go out into the fields and preach to thousands. But it was his fervent desire that all who heard him might experience the transforming power of God's grace. And so time after time, he would come back to this text. You must be born again. Well, I'm not George Whitfield, but this morning I want to proclaim to you the new birth for the new year. You must be born again. Notice what's happening here. There's a, this whole passage is a conversation that is taking place between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. And that is true all the way through. You get down to verse 21, and it's still Jesus explaining things to Nicodemus. Jesus is the one. I don't know, you know, we sometimes lose sight of these things that are fairly obvious there in the text. It is Jesus who says, John 3, 16... For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus is speaking about himself there. So this is all a conversation between Jesus and this man Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, as we see in verse 2, comes to Jesus by night. Nicodemus is described variously as a ruler of the Jews As the teacher of Israel, there's a lot of different things that we can find out about this man named Nicodemus. He was a man of some admirable character. He was religious and he was moral. He was a Pharisee. And that tells us a great deal about him right there. The Pharisees believed that the scriptures were the word of God. So you put that in the good column. You right? talk about Pharisees and everything's negative right away. Right? There were some good things about the Pharisees. They just didn't follow through on those good things. They did believe that the scripture was the word of God. They were extremely conscientious about obeying every jot and tittle of the law. Their mistake was to believe that their efforts to obey the law would make them acceptable to God and grant them entrance into the kingdom. That's where they went wrong. And that's really the basis for this entire conversation. Jesus is correcting Nicodemus's thinking. In addition to being religious and moral, Nicodemus was a leader. Verse 1 tells us that he was a ruler of the Jews. That is, he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. And he was a ruler, not just of a small congregation of people, but he was a religious leader over the the entire Jewish nation. That's who Nicodemus was. That was his position, that was the kind of man he was. But John tells us more than that. John tells us that there was something troubling Nicodemus. Troubling him so much, in fact, that he felt compelled to come to Jesus to ask him some questions. And he came at risk to his position, which is why he comes at night. He's got a lot to risk here. And so he's trying to minimize that risk. Jesus and the Pharisees did not get along. Jesus and the Sanhedrin did not see eye to eye. And so he was risking being identified as something of a traitor. And yet, he comes. He comes by night, apparently very... Conscious of public opinion. The reason for his concern is that Jesus is rapidly gaining popularity at this point, and Nicodemus didn't want to be identified with a cause that would be very unpopular with his fellow Pharisees. That's the reason they had a problem with Jesus in the first place. Their, Jesus was a threat to their power and position, But there is something eating at Nicodemus. There is something making him restless in his soul. And so he seeks out Jesus. He has a question that he wanted to ask. It's a very important question. He came searching for answers. And so he comes to Jesus and he says in verse 2, Rabbi, teacher, teacher, So here is a man whom Jesus will later describe as a teacher of Israel. He comes to Jesus and he calls Jesus teacher. Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Well, there's more than just a little bit of flattery here. This is his opening. He wants to question Jesus, but he wants to make sure they get off on the right foot. He wants to make sure that Jesus understands he's not really with the rest of those Pharisees. He sees something in Jesus that the others don't. And there's something Something about Nicodemus that causes us to see that he believes there's something unusual about Jesus. Maybe Jesus has some answers. Nicodemus, and we've got to just take him at his word, Nicodemus believes that Jesus has come from God as a teacher. So, his understanding of who Jesus is is not yet fully fleshed out. That will come later. But he believes that Jesus has come from God as a teacher. So, he's seeing Jesus along the line of John the Baptist. Maybe he's a prophet, he's certainly different than all the other rabbis. In some sense, Jesus has come from God. Nicodemus recognizes this. Nicodemus is that person who, by the grace of God, is spiritually hungry and seeking for answers. Now that may raise some questions because the Apostle Paul tells us no one seeks for God. So how does someone seek for God if no one seeks for God? Well, what Paul means, of course, is that no one seeks for God on their own. If someone is genuinely seeking him, it is because God has first sought him. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. (laughs) It's really him seeking me. That's what's going on. If you're seeking God this morning, it's not because you're so good. It's not because you're particularly righteous. If you are truly seeking, it's because God is drawing you if you find that what you've believed all of your life has gotten you nowhere, then perhaps God is drawing you. If you feel as if going through all of the religious motions of ceremony and ritual have left you far from God, then perhaps God is drawing you. If there is an emptiness in your soul, then perhaps like Nicodemus, God is drawing you. When Nicodemus was drawn, he came to the right place. (laughs) He came to Jesus. And how does Jesus respond to him? Well, first, Jesus completely ignores everything that Nicodemus says. Jesus was not one to bask in flattery. Jesus cuts through all of that and gets right to the point. Before Nicodemus can even ask his question, Jesus addresses the real question. We don't even know what Nicodemus' question would have been. But Jesus knows what he needed to hear, regardless of what he wanted to hear. And so... When Jesus responds to Nicodemus, Jesus wants Nicodemus to understand two things, essentially. First, Jesus wants Nicodemus to understand the necessity of the new birth. And so he says there in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And We've got to be so careful here. Because this whole idea of being born again has been so twisted. People talk about born again Christians as if there were some other kind. And I've heard people say this. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but not one of those born again kind. Right? Listen, if you're not a born again Christian, you're not a Christian. If you're not born again, you're dead in your sin. Because Jesus says, you must be born again. And so we're not talking about a, you know, a sect within Christianity. We're not talking about a denomination. We're not talking about a particular kind of church. We're talking about what happens to the heart when God transforms someone when he brings someone from spiritual death to spiritual life. That is what it means to be born again. And this is what he tells Nicodemus. Before he says anything else, before he even acknowledges anything that Nicodemus has said, he doesn't even say hi he just cuts right through everything else and says nick you've got to be born again without being born again you can't even see the kingdom of god and so jesus reminds nicodemus of another world the scripture teaches that god is king And that God reigns sovereignly over everything that is. But the prophets also foresaw a future kingdom at the end of history presided over by the Lord himself. To a Jew with the background and experience of Nicodemus, to see the kingdom of God meant to participate in the kingdom of God. At the end of the age. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you can't even understand what's coming unless you are born again. Jesus is also telling Nicodemus that there's only one way to enter into that kingdom. Jesus makes it clear that the condition for entrance into the kingdom of God is the new birth. Now, notice that one does not gain entrance into that kingdom on the basis of how religious or moral or righteous one has been. It's on the basis of this new birth. Now pay attention to this, because this metaphor that Jesus is using here for what theologians would refer to as the doctrine of regeneration That dead person being brought to life. That's what Jesus is describing here. He's using birth as a metaphor. You've got to be born again. And right there we have the explanation for something that's going to come along a little bit later. Down in verse um, 5 and 6. Being born of water, being born of the spirit. If we're being born again, it means we've already been born once That's your physical birth. But you need to be born again in order to see, and Jesus will later talk about entering, the kingdom. Now typically, what has happened in 20th century, 21st century evangelicalism, this idea of being born again has taken on a completely unbiblical meaning. People talk about being born again as something you need to do. You need to be born again as an action. It's something that you do. But that's not what Jesus is saying. You can't see the kingdom until you have been born again. But he doesn't say anything about you going through certain procedures... In order to get born again, it's not what he's saying. You didn't do anything to birth yourself the first time, that was not your decision. Your mother did that, she gave birth, and you were fairly passive in the procedure. To be born again is along the same lines. It is something that happens to us, not something we do. God gives birth to us. He gives us life. By his sovereign grace, he takes those of us who were dead and he brings us To life. So we don't go out on the street preaching the gospel and tell people, here, you need to pray this prayer, and once you pray this prayer, then you'll be born again. That's backwards. God causes us to be born again so that we will then believe the gospel. And we believe the gospel. And then, what's the natural outworking of believing the gospel? We want to pray. Because we're new creatures. We've been made children of God. And we want to commune with our Father. So we want to pray. But we're not saved because we pray. We want to pray because we've been saved. We've been saved because we believe the gospel. We believe the gospel because God has caused us to be born again. Otherwise, we're still dead in our sin. And the scripture says, for one who is dead in sin, he cannot understand spiritual things. If Nicodemus is even going to be able to see the kingdom, he's got to be born again first. Now notice, one does not gain entrance into that kingdom according to their own qualifications, according to their own effort, according to their own works. That's not how it goes. Jesus says, no, no, no. It's a spiritual event which God initiates, which God completes. And then all of those other things follow. Now, Jesus also wants Nicodemus to understand this nature of the new birth, and so he goes on in verses 4 through 6 to try to help him understand, because clearly Nicodemus is puzzled. And you can imagine. I get this picture of Nicodemus standing there with his chin dropped, right? His jaw open, just... I, I I have no idea what you're talking about, Jesus. You know, I see in the face of Nicodemus what my professors must have seen in my face so often. Just. As Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus is still thinking in physical terms. He doesn't understand what Jesus is getting at. He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now, Nicodemus understood. You can't do that, obviously. It's a rhetorical question. It's a question meant to express his own befuddlement. You're clearly not talking about a second physical birth. So what are you talking about? And Jesus answers and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So what Jesus Communicates to Nicodemus when Nicodemus says you got to tell me more because I'm not getting this is that the new birth is a spiritual birth. Jesus is talking about something that Nicodemus should have known. That's why he goes on in verse 7 and says do not be amazed that I say to you you must be born again. The English word again comes from a Greek word which can also mean from above. So Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus to understand that it's not just this fleshly birth that we go through here below, but there's another birth that originates from above, which is exactly what we've been saying. It's the sovereign work of And that ties in with Jesus' comment that he must be born of water and the Spirit. Now, there have been people that have taken this all kinds of ways. You know, It refers to uh, the baptism and things like that. But if you just read through the text, it's, it, it's always baffled me why, for some, it's not just the most obvious thing in the world. Nicodemus is asking about Entering into his mother's womb a second time. What's he talking about? Physical birth. Verse 6. That which is born of flesh is flesh. What's he talking about? Physical birth. And sandwiched right between that. Is Jesus' statement that unless one is born of water. What are we? How do we describe a woman who is beginning the process of of giving birth? Her water breaks. And the spirit, physical birth, spiritual birth, then he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. You see where Jesus is going. You can't see and you can't enter unless this spiritual birth is yours. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. And this new birth that we've been talking about is a sovereign work. Notice where Jesus goes with this now. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit the Holy Spirit's operation in the new birth is incomprehensible in some respects, although its effects are discernible. That's what the wind is like. You don't see the wind, you see the effects of the wind. You don't see the work of the Spirit in causing someone to be born again. What you see are the effects. The life is changed. That is... The new birth comes according to the sovereign work of God, according to the mystery of God's providential work in us. We are able to know that we are born again because we are not the same as we used to be. Things have changed. The wind blows where it wishes, you hear the sound of it, you do not know where it comes from and where it is going, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now in our experience, we discern something else. In my experience, I heard the gospel. I believed it to be true. And so I gave myself to Christ. I did it. I heard it. I understood. I made a decision. Why? Scripture says that the natural man cannot understand spiritual things. So how did I understand the gospel? How did I understand my need for Christ? How did I understand that Jesus is the only savior that I need? How could I come to that place where I understood my need to place myself in his hands, trusting in him alone? It's because the spirit was moving, though I couldn't see the spirit. But my understanding... And my decision-making, all of that were the effects of what the Spirit was doing. Nicodemus still doesn't get it. And so in verse 9, Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can these things be? He continues to be puzzled about what Jesus is telling him. So, Jesus. Carrying on the conversation points out Nicodemus' slowness in understanding and believing. Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? That's got to be a little embarrassing. You claim to be a teacher? It's as if Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, This is is child level stuff. How do you not know this? And Nicodemus was a teacher of the scripture. Obviously, at this point, the Old Testament. He should have understood what Jesus was saying. And that's how Jesus responds. Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will will you believe even if I tell you heavenly things? Now, Jesus is thinking of passages in the Old Testament that Nicodemus should have known. Passages like Ezekiel 36, where God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. You hear that? That is Old Testament language, for you must be born again. It's God saying, this is what I'm going to do. It's not God saying, here's what you need to do. And the Lord goes on there in Ezekiel and says, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In the Old Testament, when that kind of language is used to describe what God does in the heart of an individual. It's exactly what we have just been talking to take out a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh is to cause someone who is dead to live. If your heart turns to stone, you're dead. If your heart of stone is transformed into a heart of flesh, That heart of flesh is alive. Only a heart of flesh can pump. That's what we're talking about here. There is a divine heart transplant which takes place. My heart was stone and God turned it to flesh. And because he turned it to flesh, I could understand the gospel and believe. And that's what Jesus is trying to get across to poor Nicodemus. Nicodemus is being upbraided for his slowness in the face of the clear biblical teaching of the Old Testament, which he should have known. Now, Jesus continues with this conversation. Right, It's turning into a monologue. Because by this time, if you're Nicodemus, you're done, right? You're you're not going to open your mouth anymore. You're done with your questions, and Jesus just takes it now, and Nicodemus absorbs it. And he continues on with a number of very important truths about, first, his teaching. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 11, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. Jesus wants Nicodemus to know there can be no doubt with respect to his teaching on the new birth, on regeneration. Jesus would not have agreed with the modern liberal approach of not being dogmatic about things. This is a plague upon the Christian church. We have men standing in pulpits who don't want to be dogmatic. Even the word dogmatic raises up negative connotations in our minds. And there are many things, granted, we should not be dogmatic about. But when it comes to the clear teaching of scripture, it is to be proclaimed clearly and without apology And that is certainly what Jesus is doing here. When scripture speaks clearly and plainly, Jesus speaks clearly and plainly, and we ought to speak clearly and plainly. Jesus expects us to do what he did. But Jesus also wants Nicodemus to know something about his origin Look at verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, the son of man. And Jesus proved this truth by the way in which he lived his life and ultimately by his resurrection from the dead and his ascension back to the right hand of the father. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from From heaven. Now you can go back to the Old Testament and say, "Well, you got you know Elisha, Enoch." All right. Jesus in a slightly different category. None of those others descended, as Jesus did, only to ascend again. In that category, there is only one. And that is Jesus Christ. Jesus also talks about his his purpose. He says to Nicodemus in verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him, I'm sorry, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Jesus was referring here to his future death, of course. His resurrection and his ascension into heaven. And then continuing that, he talks about those who will believe in him and the eternal life that they will receive because they believe. Jesus knew that eternal life is given to those who believe in him. And then Jesus goes on to tell Nicodemus what has become the best known statement in the entire scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus concludes his teaching by distinguishing between condemnation and judgment on the one hand and salvation and eternal life on the other. And that's what he does throughout the rest of this Passage. And we hear, don't we? I hear voices, not that way. I hear voices saying, Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus just loves everyone. Jesus would never judge. Jesus would never condemn. And as in so many other cases, I have to ask, have you ever opened a Bible? Does Jesus save? Absolutely. Jesus has never turned away anyone who has come to him in repentance and faith. Will Jesus judge? Absolutely. He is the judge. And when he comes, he will sit on his throne, and the nations will be raised and stand before him. And he will judge them. And so here, what are we seeing? We we love verse 16. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Isn't that wonderful? Yes, it is. But we keep reading. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And we love that too, and that's great, and that's wonderful. Salvation is possible because God has sent Jesus into the world. Then we get into some trouble. He who believes in him is not judged. Yea, He who does not believe has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Who's speaking this again? Jesus. This isn't John talking about Jesus. This is John quoting Jesus. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So lest you read the first part of that verse he who practices the truth comes to the light and think well practices the truth that means that that's referring obviously to good works so i guess people really are saved by works. No, keep reading. So that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. That means that God is the source of the works. So God in his sovereign grace has caused someone to be born again. And as a result of being born again, that person... Has come to understand the gospel and embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and then God brings out of that newly regenerate person works. Works need to be kept on the right side of the cross. That is, after the cross, not before the cross. We are not saved because of our works we do good works because we have been saved. You go over to Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, you read through Paul's epistles. Everything Paul says is found here in the words of Christ in John 3. Jesus moves from talking about the new birth to talking about faith, Because faith is the result of the new birth. And then he goes on to talk about works. Because works are the product of faith. What must a person do to be born again? Nothing. It's the sovereign work of God. We respond to that in faith. but we don't cause ourselves to be born again. God does it out of his inexhaustible grace. And we respond through the work of the spirit in repentance and faith. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because that is true, In order to see and enter the kingdom, we must be born again. And we know that we have been born again when we find that we are trusting in Jesus alone for our salvation. And that faith in Jesus alone then manifests itself in good works and ongoing sanctification. Every one of us here this morning can have a new beginning for a new year by believing in Jesus. And I pray you will do that today if you have not already done so. Father, make it so. When we pray, Father, for the lost We pray to you that the lost would be saved because you are sovereign in the bestowal of your grace. So, Father, pour out your grace. Bring the dead to life. Turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And cause them to love you. Yes, Father, for their own good, for their own redemption, for their own salvation. But, Father, ultimately for the glory of Jesus Christ. This we ask in his name.